Welcome to the latest instalment of Baker McKenzie's DR Soundbite series. My name's Andrew Matheson, and today we're going to talk about corporate criminal liability. This summer, the UK Law Commission published a discussion paper seeking views on potential revisions to the basis for attributing criminal liability to non-natural persons, such as companies, charities and local authorities. The challenge that commonly arises in applying criminal law to corporations is that most criminal offences are created with natural persons in mind and often include a mental element. How then do you attribute a state of mind to a company? The general answer under English law comes in the form of the identification doctrine. That means that where a state of mind is a required element of the offence, only the mental state of a senior person who can be said to be the company's directing mind and will can be attributed to the company. In practice, that can be very difficult to apply because the individuals who might commit corporate wrongdoing are not always senior enough to represent the company's directing mind and will. Baker McKenzie's response to the Commission's consultation is the subject of a separate podcast in this series, but today we want to talk about the wider approach to corporate criminal liability taken by our friends in the US. Has the US got it right? If not, what checks and controls are missing from their system? To help us explore these issues on today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Firestone and Widge Devaney, partners from Baker's offices in New York and Washington. Which Tom, hi. Hi. Hey, um, Andrew. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Not at all. Um, Which um, as an intro for our non-US listeners, uh, c- please could you briefly summarise how the US approaches questions of criminal liability for corporates and, uh, and also how that approach can implicate organisations outside of the US? Sure. And it's actually quite unlike the UK controlling or directing mine doctrine. In the US, we use the doctrine of respondeat superior, which quite literally means that the master answers for the actions of the servant. So in a corporate liability context, the corporation is liable for the actions of its employees and its agents, as long as the employer agent is acting within the scope of their employment or agency, and that it also acts to the benefit or partly to the benefit, at least, of the corporation. Um, The way that plays out in reality is very broad. I mean, let's just use bribery as an example. Um, A salesman pays a bribe uh, to get a contract. Um, Is that within the scope of his employment? Of course it is. He's a salesman. And it goes to his overall just kind of duties as a salesman. Does it benefit the corporation? It does. Because even if the corporation has policies against it, even if they specifically told that salesman, you can't pay a bribe, they still get the benefit of the contract. So it creates very, very broad criminal liability for corporates. Unlike the UK, it doesn't matter what level the person, the employee or the agent is. It could be the lowest level person in the company up to the chairman of the board. So it's broad, almost strict liability for corporates based on the actions of the employees. And that's leavened only really by DOJ policy limiting when they're going to exercise their discretion to um, prosecute. The impact that has on foreign 
companies or non-U.S. companies is really pretty great. Um, if the agent or employee is in the U.S., but the corporation isn't, there's liability and jurisdiction nonetheless of, because of this doctrine. Conversely, if the company is a U.S. company, but the agent or employee's actions are abroad, there's liability and jurisdiction. And jurisdiction in the U.S. Um, for foreign actors and corporations has really run amok lately, almost just to the point of wherever there's a, a point of contact with the U.S., there's jurisdiction. So do you think that is a quote unquote, a good thing, that wide jurisdiction? Uh, I do. Um, not only is it pretty straightforward, um, it, you know, unlike the UK system, it doesn't build in the risk of plausible deniability from the top. Um, and it really does incentivize corporate compliance in a way that just having, I think, a civil or, or a regulatory regime um, uh, allows. We've seen over time that corporations really do seem to fear or respect the opprobrium that comes with a criminal prosecution. Um, there's greater reputational damage. Uh, there's often a massive decline in their share price um, if there are criminal charges. And a mere indictment alone can uh, destroy a corporation. We just don't see that kind of um, uh, fear of regulatory regimes, whether corporations are building regulatory fines, which can be as high as criminal fines, into the cost of doing business or not. Uh, you know, I'm not really so sure, but it doesn't just seem to incentivize conduct or compliance the same way that corporate criminal liability does. And if we just look, you know, even at the re recent uh, wing flapping that's going on with the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco last week, um, essentially saying that the Biden administration is going to be tougher on corporate crime. Um, really, just going back to pre-Trump eras, uh, the pre-Trump era, and that's launched a million client alerts. It's really gotten people's attention in a way that, if that had been a regulatory pronouncement, it just wouldn't have gotten the same attention. And I also think, you know, we've seen this in other areas, and I think we're on the right side of history here because there have been many civil law jurisdictions that from the 90s have adopted corporate criminal liability from France and Brazil and Italy and Spain, really for the reason that they see corporate criminal liability drives compliance. So I do think it's a good idea, but I have a feeling Tom may disagree with me. Tom, fire away. What do you think? Well, I agree with Widge's characterization of the facts and the situation. I disagree that corporate criminal liability is a good thing. Widge mentioned history. Let's go back to history. This arose at a time when we didn't have a regulatory state. It arose in the late 19th century as a way to address industrial accidents when there were no other means for holding corporations accountable. I don't think anybody saw the extent to which it would be applied in the modern world. My concern with corporate criminal liability is as Widge will agree, we're both former prosecutors. Prosecutors have tremendous power in the system. Every system gropes with the question of how to curb uh, prosecutorial abuse, prevent prosecutorial overreach. There's a real problem. The way we do that traditionally in our systems is through trial by jury. A defendant has the right to demand that he be proven guilty by a jury um, beyond a reasonable doubt. That 
guardrail on prosecutorial abuse of trial by jury doesn't exist in the corporate context for exactly the reason that Widge said. The opprobrium, the reputational damage of an indictment alone is enough to ruin a company. So what you have is a tremendous disbalance of power. Prosecutors merely need to charge a company, not convicted at trial in order to inflict severe damage on it. I think that disbalance removes the major guardrail against prosecutorial abuse in the corporate context of uh, trial by jury. And so I think it's I think it's dangerous. And I think that so long as we have an accurate, um, adequate regulatory state and corporations can be incentivized to do the right thing through other means that don't include criminal indictment, that's a preferable alternative. So 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 how would you fix the system? What kind of regulatory means would you have in the U.S. uh, approach to well, what we, I mean, if we're up to me, I would, I might advocate for removing corporate criminal liability altogether. That's obviously not happening. Um, so given that it exists, what do we do? What kind of uh, additional safeguards should we put in place? I would require, as Widge said, it's really up to DOJ's discretion. I would require DOJ to specify in even more detail than they already have the criteria for bringing criminal charges against companies. And I would put in a requirement that they can bring criminal charges only if they show that there are no alternative means to adequately punish a corporation and they should have the burden should be on them to explain why regulatory fines, regulatory enforcement actions are not sufficient. And I think they should be required to demonstrate that to the satisfaction of a court, not just to internal DOJ supervisors before bringing criminal charges against a company. Which, what what do you got to say to that? Do you agree? Uh, I agree with a lot of what Tom has to say on that. I think there are some very good reforms that could be put in. Um, One area where I would go, which Tom alluded to, I'm not sure if I would go quite as far, but I would look to, um, uh, you know, putting a check on the prosecutorial discretion by not only having a, you know, adequate compliance program defense to the prosecutor, but actually allow corporations to bring that in as an affirmative defense to respond to superior liability at trial. Because hopefully that would then make it that a corporation could actually go to trial, to Tom's point. Because I think if corporations are able to go to trial and to fight this, right, fight the discretion given to prosecutors, that is really the main check to be put on the system. And so I think if we're able to put that into place, that there's an affirmative defense that a corporation has an adequate compliance program. That would blunt the discretion of the prosecutor and also allow corporates a forum to go in and challenge criminal charges, you know, without essentially just having the mere death penalty of an indictment. Because it would create the expectation out there that, look, um, even though a corporation's indicted, they might not have, they might not be guilty. They might be able to establish uh, you know, that they've done everything reasonably possible uh, at trial. And, you know, I think interestingly enough, Andrew, for the for the UK audience, that brings us really very close to uh, the UK Bribery Act and some other regimes in the UK that have a strict liability, but an affirmative defense of we had adequate procedures in place. Right now in the US, pretty much the same, but you argue your adequate procedures to the prosecutor. I'd like you to. I'd like to see that you're able to add, argue the adequate procedures to the jury. Thanks, Wedge. Um, Tom, I feel I ought to give you the, the final word here, or at least a right of reply. Any closing remarks? 
Well, I mean, the, the question of what are adequate compliance procedures is one, one that we can debate to the end of time. It's sort of like, what is the sound of, you know, uh, one, ha- one hand clapping or something like that. Query whether or not we really want to turn those into jury trial issues rather than just, you know, go to a more efficient regulatory system, such as I have suggested. Fascinating idea, which not sure if I agree with you. One thing I think we all agree on is the corporate criminal liability is not going anywhere. Companies need adequate compliance procedures to prevent violations so they don't have to deal with this issue. And I think that's where we all agree that every company has to stay on top of what's happening in the field, do regular risk assessments and make sure that its procedures are adequate. That's the best defense against being charged. Excellent note on which to end. (laughs) <laughs> which, which, Tom, thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been, it's been fascinating to hear, hear you both speak. Um, thank you very much for your time.